This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Geraint Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Brought to you by Zwift, the indoor cycling app where fun is fast. Welcome. Right, Jeep, there seems to be a common theme to the start of these episodes these days, very much coming from your direction, I'd say. So we're starting with food again this week, mainly because you keep WhatsApping me pictures of your pre- and post-race food, and I don't think I'm as impressed by these pictures as you'd like me to be. <laughs> no, they don't look the most appetising. I'm just trying to give you a flavour of what it's actually like to be a pro, Tom, you know? It's, it's not all... Michelin star meals and, I don't know, five-star resorts. This is, yeah, basic stuff out of a cardboard box on the bus on the way to the start, eating rice, farge, yoghurt, and an Actimel thrown in there for a bit of flavour. It doesn't sound nice, but it is actually nice. That's a, that's a cracking breakfast, that is. Get you ready for a, a good hard four-hour four stage. And to be fair to you, like the picture you sent me, there wasn't much left in the box. So, look, the evidence is, is right there in front of me. You've smashed it down, you've enjoyed it. Yeah, although saying that, you know, when I retire, I'm never going to eat that again, out of choice. <laughs> so it is purely fuel. But yeah, there's worse things you could eat, like a Welsh cake in the oven. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, gee, over the last couple of weeks, we've been running our official GTCC Bake Off, haven't we? We have. And I wanted to give a couple of shout outs to the best entries. Now, we should say we haven't actually tried these which is a bit of a flaw but it's difficult at the moment but for now it will be about the looks i think that takes you to a certain place we've had some amazing looking biscoff brownies from Ginny ganaway tour de france cupcakes from rebecca ingham a carrot cake decorated with walnuts from justin Pugh. what are your thoughts on walnuts on cakes g i don't know uh i don't mind i don't mind it gives it a bit of texture you know a bit of a crunch um you don't want loads though just one or two Oh, they all sound really good though, don't they? Like I'm hungry now. Like maybe we should start. Maybe we might have to introduce a food ban at some point because we're supposed to be on the regime here. Along with crashes, no food talk or cake talk. But um, we've also had a heavy cake from Mark Batten, which apparently is a delicacy in Cornwall and food of the gods. Yeah, but what do you mean a heavy cake? Do you mean like it weighs a lot, or it's is that well, its official name, heavy cake? Apparently so. Um, to be honest, it didn't really look the tastiest and it definitely looked very heavy. But um, yeah, maybe, maybe it tastes better than it looks. Well, I hope it does because, yeah. Maybe they need to rebrand this cake, G. Like usually cakes are described as like light and fluffy. That's meant to be a positive. It's the heavy cake. I don't know. Yeah. Do you fancy a slice of heavy cake? No, I don't actually. But <laughs> yeah, it, it's not really selling itself, is it? Like, you know, because everyone knows cakes are quite bad anyway. They could call it robust cake, and that feels a bit more positive, doesn't it? Or hearty, a hearty cake. Hearty, that's nice better, slice yeah. of hearty cake. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know we got those um, pictures on our Facebook page from Sid Gaskin. He was the one with the suspect Welsh cakes. You know the ones that he baked rather than griddle panned. Yeah. Now the good thing about Sid, he's he's not easily defeated. Sid Gaskin, he's come back with some protein flapjacks, which feels sort of more your ballpark than the. The hearty cake, G. <laughs> yeah, at the moment it would be, yeah, especially when you're racing. But yeah, I don't know. The thing is for me, right, if I'm going to have a cake, I want to have a cake. You know, I don't want to have a cake that's got some, you know, I don't know, substitute blinking sugar for 
avocado oil or I don't know what they do. You know, all those random bloody crazy things people do these days. Just, if you're going to have sugar, give me sugar, you know what I mean? Same with beer. I'm not really a fan of... I can I can see how some people, you know, if you drink a lot, but for me, I rarely drink. So if I'm going to have a beer, I just want a beer, you know? None of this alcohol-free malarkey. I'm just picturing poor old Sid Gaskin now who... He's already binned off, binned off his rubbish world cakes. Now he's looking down at his protein. Flat yeah, we're cats. giving him our time. No, 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 no. I, I, don't get me wrong. Very much appreciated. And uh, yeah, maybe we can add that to our uh, our breakfast buffet. Yeah, why not? Hey, we also had some apricot buns from Paula, some Belgian buns from Robert, a Simnel cake from Sue Dashi. That's a sort of Easter cake, isn't it? A Simnel cake. Um, this was one of many she sent in. And... A Manchester tart from Laura. Anyway, enough about eating. Let's talk about cycling. Right, it's Six Nations time, which means one thing, more French disappointment. Not this year, but we've eaten our dark bread for a long, long time and now we're back. We've got spirit, we've got heart, we've got the flair that's still there. We've got winning mentality. The title is ours this year, you will see. So France are winning the Six Nations. We've got all the stories, the colour, the big name guests, the scandal from behind the scenes in French rugby. Why wouldn't you want to listen? There you go. Sold it well, guys. That's adopted Frenchman Johnny Beattie. Full-on Frenchman, Benjamin Kayser. And you can catch us on the French Rugby Podcast every Wednesday on all your usual podcast platforms. Au revoir. Écoutez et téléchargez ce super podcast. Merci. The GTCC are delighted to be sponsored by our friends at Amp Human. They're dedicated to helping athletes at all levels achieve their potential, even amateurs like me. AMP's flagship product, PR Lotion, is the world's first and only lotion to deliver the natural electrolyte bicarb to the body. Now, gee, this all sounds quite fancy, but you've been using it for, what, a couple of years now? Does it help? Yeah, definitely. And it's not just any old ad this either, you know, to try and get a bit of cash in to help produce the pod. But I genuinely feel like it does help. Kind of lather it on wherever you want, whatever muscles are working. So, yeah, bang it all over my legs for any hard session or, uh, yeah, time trial. Well, there's studies as well that show a 50% reduction in muscle soreness when using PR lotion. And you can benefit too with 25% off your next purchase using the code GTCC25. That's the letters GTCC and the number 25. Just visit amphuman.com forward slash GTCC and start training with your PR lotion today. I've dived in and chosen our topics for this week. Um, I'm going to give you some very basic clues, which I think will lead you to guessing this straight away. The first clue I'm going to give you is once every four years. Commonwealth Games. It's warm. It's warm. The second one is Baron Pierre de Coubertin. Uh, Oh, you've lost me now. Okay. I thought you'd find this slightly easier, bearing in mind that you (laughs) have been to two of these things and won gold medals at both of them. Ah, uh, Olympic Games. The Olympic Games. Who was that person you just said, though? Was it a person or? Baron de Coubertin was the founder of the modern Olympic Games in 1896. Oh. Although there's a little bit of uh, chat that maybe he wasn't, because there's, there's a couple of other Olympics. There's one in the Cotswolds and there's one in Much Wenlock in Shropshire. So de Coubertin gets the nod in history of the man who revitalised the Olympic Games from ancient Greece. But actually, they were knocking on for quite a long time in 
two different parts of England in the meantime. And there ends your sporting history lesson for this week. <laughs> well, cheers. Thanks for that, Tom. Not at all. So were you the sort of kid, because I was, who when the Olympics came round, it was like the greatest summer every time it came round. And you were just like, right, mum, this is what I'm doing this summer. I'm watching the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. I remember the first one must have been 92. I just remember being sat in my front room, well, my parents' front room, obviously, on the, on the carpet, just watching all different sports. Um, obviously, athletic sticks out. Was that Linford Christie? Was he? It was. was. He, uh, yeah. Yeah, so him and... Uh, the swimming and stuff as well. And I remember after that, my first sort of games console and those Olympic games were out, you know, and you'd be like bashing on the buttons from the swimming and then the <laughs> long jump and stuff. So, but yeah, the Olympics is something I always like, since I was a kid then just dreaming of just doing and, and winning medal in. So, um, yeah, ever, ever since I can remember really just sport, sport in general has always been big and my dad loved it obviously. And that's what gave me the bug. They're weird things, aren't they, G? Because you watch an Olympics on TV and then you actually get to one. Like my memories of covering them, the, the first few I went to, was you get there and it feels like a city's been rebuilt and it seems a bit weird, all this new stuff's been built. And then they start and you get this really weird feeling, which is that there's more people in the world looking at this, these few square miles of the world's surface than anywhere else in the world. It's like everyone is watching this tiny little patch. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. But when you're doing it, I certainly didn't think that because I think you'd, well, you'd shit yourself, wouldn't you? I think, um, <laughs> not literally, but it, I think it just, um, obviously going into the village for the first time was like, wow, this is mental. Like they've just built this for all these thousands of athletes to come and compete. Um, but yeah, like for, in Beijing, we just stuck in our own little world. We didn't really sort of, we saw all the different shapes and sizes in the food hall of people. You know, like obviously these really tall people, like really short, really big, stocky, really skinny. That was mad. But to be fair, until after my race, it didn't really take much in. It was all just stay in my own little bubble and just worrying about what I've got to do and, and trying to win that really. London, I definitely took it in a bit more, but it's still, you're still very sort of in your own zone, so to speak. And you don't want to sort of get all like touristy or whatever or starstruck or anything like that really. How about for you though? Because when I've gone to see, um, I went to the end of the tour one year because I crashed out and I went back for the final stage and it's so annoying going to watch like a sporting event, a big one. <laughs> I have a new appreciation for what has to do because I was all right, ball like, like, you know, you've got to go walk, massive walk, you know, around the houses to get in and all this and that. But the Olympics for me, right? When I, the first one I went to, I was so blown away by the fact I was at the Olympics and I never lost that awe that. I was actually at something that as a kid I'd, I'd watched on TV. The funniest thing for me, because you generally get quite good seats if you're, if you're broadcasting or writing at Olympics, is who else turns up for particular Olympic events. So the men's 100 metres final is always a massive draw. So you can be sitting there, as I was in the BBC commentary box, and you'd have a really good view of the, of the, of the track. And then certainly in, um, I think it was in London, anyone who could sneak into the commentary box sneaked in. So suddenly, with about 10 minutes to go, particularly with Usain Bolt, uh, Lennox Lewis turned up and John McEnroe turned up. Anyone who'd had any connection with the Olympics or a ticket had sneaked in. <laughs> and Lennox Lewis is massive. Like Lennox Lewis is six foot, serious six foot, and he's still built. And he stood directly in front of, <laughs> of our commentary box. <laughs> and the producer at the time was the one, because no one really fancied going to Lennox. Oi, heavyweight champion of the world, get out of the way. So our producer's job was to go and 
tap Lennox Lewis on the shoulder and ask if he could move out the way. So this guy taps Lennox Lewis on the shoulder. Lennox just ignores him. So then he taps John McEnroe on the shoulder and just said, excuse me, could you, um, could you move? And Lennox Lewis, without even looking at the producer, just looked down at, at John McEnroe and just went, ignore him. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what did you do? Just after... There was a bit of, croning of, bit of croning of necks going on, yeah. It's very difficult to argue with Lennox Lewis. Right, G, so I've chosen today's topic, but I did need a little bit of help from you to get us a decent guest. I asked for an Olympic legend. Have you got on? I think I've done it right. This person's got six Olympic gold medals. They're an 11-time world champion. The first Britain in 100 years to win three gold medals at the same Olympics. And they were the most successful Olympic cyclist of all time at that point. So introduce him, Sir Chris Hoy. Welcome. Thank you very much. Great introduction from a Tour de France winner. Well, you know, I try my best. <laughs> we don't mention Jason Kenny at this point with his medals. Is he just no. persona non grata? Well, you know, technically it was true what he said there. At the, at the time, I was the most successful. Now my has been. I'm just the joint most successful. Um, but yeah, Jason's not won 11 world titles, has he? Come on. How many has he got? Do you know? I don't know. I think a piffling three or four. <laughs> but anyway, thanks for joining. No, it's my okay. pleasure. It's my pleasure. It's good to see you. Well, the first thing I want to know, I do want to get into all the cycling stuff, Chris, but there's a fascination for all of those of us who will never go inside an Olympic village. They're a place of fascination. Right, we, we know they're massive. We know that they are like some weird Noah's Ark of the world's best athletes. You've been in plenty going all the way back. What, what are they really like? Well, I think what's interesting about the Olympic Village is how it changes from the day you arrive to the, the day you leave at the end. And when you first arrive, it's just you feel the tension, you feel the expectation, you've got the nerves, you've got the excitement. Um, you know, you've been building up to this moment for four years or for some people, it could be 10, 20 years. It could be their whole life. That, that's their one chance. Um, so you get there and you're super excited, nervous, anticipation. It's all new. You're trying to find where your apartment is, where the dining hall is, you know, all the different things you've got to do. And then as the time progresses and then when you finish competition, it just becomes this. It's like, a, it's like a, a, you know, I don't know, a holiday camp. It's like a party zone. It's, it's just incredible. The last night, the closing ceremony when everybody you know, literally everyone has finished. All the pressure is off. Whether you're an athlete or a coach or a mechanic or whatever your role is, everybody is in the same frame of mind. They want to celebrate. They want to let off some steam. And there's there's nowhere I've ever experienced quite like it. It's um, it's unique and it's an amazing place to be. Chris, I've heard rumours in Beijing because you had some Olympic experience by then, and you're a man who likes his coffee. Mm-hmm. You're a man who understands the importance of coffee to a power athlete. Is it true that you imported an actual been to cup coffee machine into Beijing? Um, not for Beijing. So Beijing, um, I had the little hand presso. So it's a little, it was like a bike pump. Okay. Um, that you pour the hot, the boiling water in and then you have a little um, pod with the coffee in it. You put that in, you pump it up by hand and you push the button and it releases the espresso into your cup. So that was a real kind of, you know, worst case scenario if the coffee was really bad and the food was pretty bad in Beijing. That You know, of all the, Olympics and Commonwealth Games I've been to. Every dining hall, it's amazing. The food's amazing. You have all different sorts of cuisines. And in Beijing, it was just, it was pretty poor. Um, you know, they had the cuisine, but, they, they, you know, the vegetables were overcooked. They were all stewed. All the kind of nutrients were out of them. 
the meat wasn't great quality. And a lot of the athletes were going to McDonald's and actually having, you know, chicken salads and, and things like that, because you, at least you know that you're going to get consistent food. It's consistently average, but at least it's consistent. But yeah, coffee wise, I took my, I had my coffee machine and the grinder and all the beans and everything in London. So that was the full, you know, I had the, the full set up there. And I used to have it for any of the, any of the World Cups or World Championships where the van was driving with all the kit, you know, that weren't flying to the race, that they could actually take it on by land. I would stick my coffee machine in the back of the van. And uh, and my room was the most popular room for the whole team. You know, all these folk coming knocking the door. Oh, hi, Chris. Oh, hi. Yeah, yeah. Five minutes of, you know, small talk. And then it's like, are you uh, you, you going to make a cup of coffee? I was like, oh, yeah, right. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I became the most popular. It wasn't because they liked me. It's just because I had coffee. That's why they were always running at my room. He didn't let us team pursuers in, though, Tom. He's Chris isn't a nice guy, really. Yeah. He, he comes across no. a nice chap, but when it comes to his coffee, oh. he's like, nah, just a sprinter. <laughs> There's rules, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> what was it? Gary Beckett, the, the, this one year, used to call it Jurassic Park. That's where the, the sprinter's rooms were like Jurassic Park. You didn't go in. You didn't, you know, it's a dangerous place to be. Um, <laughs> you, you kept out of it, but... Um, but we did. I did give them a odd cup of coffee every now and again. No, you did, yeah. I'm only joking. <laughs> I remember... I was actually... Uh, do you remember when we, the world champs were in LA in like 2005? Okay, I know this is an Olympic podcast, but we actually went down to, is it Venice Beach? We're all mm. the, I want to say crazy, but well, yeah, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? Yeah, Muscle Beach and all that. Yeah. And I remember walking down there and just being like scared shitless because I just had my spleen out. And I was walking down there. I was like, so I got in between Chris and uh, Craig McLean. So these, okay, Craig's quite a bit smaller, but he's like, he's, built as well so i was just in between these two guys like yeah i'm safe here but they looked after me taking me to dunkin donuts and is it dunkin donuts uh, it was crispy cream crispy cream that's the one yeah. yeah it was that was a kind of new thing at the time and and we were it was jamie staff was telling us about crispy cream i'd never had them before and it became the mission to go and uh, get some crispy <laughs> creams you were there but you weren't racing were you because you were still injured from the the crash yeah i had the ticket so the guys were like well you might as well go and see what you can learn just went around with you boys eating donuts. Yeah. It was great. I mean, I said, I said to the guys that there's no point in taking him. He's never going to mount anything. You know, it's a waste, of, a waste of a hotel room. But they obviously didn't listen. But um, yeah, was this the tomato ketchup worlds as well? That was the tomato ketchup worlds. Yeah, yeah. Do you, would you like to ex- would you like to explain the tomato ketchup worlds? <laughs> uh, I can't really remember too much either because I was a bit drunk. But basically, we were out in LA, uh, some random bar. We'd all had a drink. Simon Jones, who was the endurance coach at the time, he's left now. He got a bit larry when he'd had a few. And he basically, I think he attacked Chris with a tomato ketchup or something. And then Chris obviously retaliated with more no, ketchup. Obviously. No, no. Well, it kind of escalated, <laughs> didn't it? I mean, Simon was the king of practical jokes. But the thing, if you're going to be into practical jokes, you've got to be able to take it in return. And Simon couldn't take it in return. So he would always dish it out. And then when it came back to, to sort of, the repercussions came back to him. He couldn't. He couldn't cope. And uh, and it was usually uh, with the mechanics. It was usually with Sandy Gilchrist or you know a few other guys. But that night, it was the last night. We we're in this bar. Maybe about two hundred cyclists there. You know, Sunday night. They all basically what happens at a world championship. You finish. Somebody finds a bar that's got a bit of space. They'll text someone in another team, another country, and say, "We found this place." And they say, "Right, we'll come down to." Word spreads very quickly, and that becomes the the, the hot spot for the night. And bearing in mind it's always a Sunday night, um, you know, it could be just a quiet little bar. They're just about to close up and all of a sudden there's 200, <laughs> you know, mad cyclists all desperate to, to to let off some steam. So went to this place. Jonesy shook a bit of ketchup on me. I shook a bit, bit of ketchup on him. 
And then he and emptied the whole bottle over me, over my head, over my top and everything. And I ran out this this bar after him, covered in ketchup. Bear in mind that ketchup looks like blood. And as I ran out, the, the police had been called. Um, there, there was there was somebody somebody had gone missing, not unrelated to us. Um, and they were there searching for this guy. And then all of a sudden, this this guy with what they thought was blood comes running out of a bar chasing someone else. And they all kind of, freeze! And the guy said to Ross Edgar, is it blood? And he said, no, it's tomato ketchup. And then they all kind of went, okay, everybody calm down. And we all kind of made our way back to the hotel and everything was fine. And we're all happily ever after. Best city in the world to do that in, isn't it? LA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Downtown God, LA. Yeah, she was. Redondo Beach, that was. Good times, good times. So let's get back to the Olympics then, Chris, right? The, the, the pressure of an Olympics. I've got a memory of 2012 in the Athletic Stadium. It's the first morning when Jess Ennis has walked out to do our 100 hurdles. It's a full stadium, which never happens, uh, usually a morning session of track and field. And there was this enormous roar. I'm only there reporting on it. And I remember looking down and my hands were shaking. And I remember thinking, bloody hell, if this is what it's like watching it, what's it like competing? So you've been in that position. You've sat there on your bike after all these, this lifetime of training and four years of specific training. You've sat there and watched people before you going out, setting PBs and breaking records. What's that moment like? Um, it's, I think it's only something you can deal with with experience. So if, you, if you've been to, you know, we were lucky to have Manchester as a venue that had many world championships and world cups and you had the home support and you had that experience of walking out stepping on the track and having that huge roar. So you, you build up to it. But London was was on a different level to anything that I'd experienced. And, and we were lucky to have had the World Cup in London in February of 2012. And that was pretty similar noise, to be honest. You know, there was same capacity stadium. The, the guys who got the tickets for the World Cup weren't going to get tickets for the Olympics. So that was their Olympics, if you like. That was their chance to see the athletes and, and you know, at the test event. So... You, you get used to it, or you don't get used to it, but you, you, tr you try and get a bit of a sample of what it's like and you prepare yourself for it. You know that when they announce your name and they say, you know, British team, Chris Hoy, there's going to be a big roar. And, and you just try and use that. You don't think, oh my God, this is the weight of the world on my shoulders. I've got to perform in front of the crowd. You think every single person here is cheering me on. They want me to win. They're with me. I've got their energy. I'm going to use this energy. And it's But it's easy to say that and it's a different thing to actually do it um, and it's easy to get caught up in the atmosphere that the Canadian uh, team pursuit team the women's team pursuit team on the first night of the or the first afternoon of the, the Olympics in London apparently when they came off the track um, they said we, we just weren't prepared for the noise you know we thought they'd cheer for the home crowd but they're cheering for everybody and they went out and they went way ahead of schedule and they kind of blew apart because of the, the, the atmosphere so you have to be able to use it and you have to be able to temper that emotion um, and use the energy, but not get caught up too much in it, and not not get distracted. Hey, Chris, do you remember in the in London they played like Big Ben, like for oh. the team pursuit? It was like thirty seconds ago there'd be a chime like a Big Ben. Oh, every time yeah. I hear that now, I just get like yeah. hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Oh, it's and and there's a they had a little um, the Chemical Brothers who I'm a massive fan of the Chemical Brothers, and they had this um, track called Velodrome. And the, the sample from that was what they used in the final few minutes or the final few seconds before the crowd calmed. And then they said, right, the session is starting. And if I hear that now, it is just that kind of Pavlovian response. You get the, the nerves and the hair stand up in your arm and you get that, that feeling. It's the same as when you hear that, you know, the, the start gate, the beeps from the start gate. Like that'll, yeah. So the day I die, that sound will, you know, elicit a bit of a, adrenaline and a bit of uh, <laughs> a reaction. 
But at the time, when you're there ready to go, you, it's, you're in that autopilot mode by then, aren't you? Like for me, the hardest bit was when you sat on the chairs waiting to step up. Because oh. when you're warming up, it's the process, you're fine. When you're rolling around the track, it's fine. You're just, you know, you're going through how you're going to race, your turns, blah, blah, blah. But then when you sit down, that's the most vulnerable point for me. It was always like that minute or two oh. where it's just like your mind can so easily wander there. Horrendous. And it, it's you're, you're absolutely right. Once you're on the bike, it's it's autopilot and that's what you train for. You you train to be um, in that autopilot state. But yeah, the minute, the seconds before, the minutes before, like the kilo is sitting there chalking up your hands, waiting to go as your rivals are setting their times. Um, the sprint, when it's head to head, it's an Olympic final, a world final. Um, and you're sitting there and your opponent's sitting right next to you. And it's just the silence as you're waiting. You're waiting, waiting to draw the numbers, the you know the starting order, and and it's it's there's so much in those last few seconds. You know you can't. People talk about psychology. It's not as if you can magic a performance out of thin air. You can't, obviously, but you can certainly lose a performance. You can you can talk yourself out of it. You can become overawed by the moment. You can have let those negative thoughts creep in, and it's it's really about just block. Or for me, it was about blocking out any of the negativity, any irrelevant thoughts anxious thoughts negative thoughts pushing that you know answering the chimp um with any logical response to kind of just stay in that zone but yeah it's it's something that you it was a love-hate relationship that part of the race you when you finish the race you look back on it fondly and go that was awesome and at the time you want to be anywhere else in the world than that seat waiting to get on the track i think i know the answer to this but you know when there is a sprint like that and you're sat next to you know olympic gold final you're sat next to some German dude or whatever or the Kieran when there's six of you all there yeah how, how do you treat that are there some sprinters that try and like psych other people out by then do they have a little word or like oh I could have shaved your legs mate or <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean there were guys there were guys who used to Sean Eady the Aussie that looked like Bluto from Popeye you know massive big <laughs> six foot three six foot four big big massive beard he had, he had a beard before it was cool to have a beard um back in 2002 and and he used to try and psych folk out and growl at them and look at them and intimidate them. And when he did it to me, <laughs> I just used to think, well, that's great because he's obviously worried about me. If he's if he's taking the time and the effort to try and psych me out, he's he's worried about me. So I thought, well, you know, I used to smile back and say good luck and, you know, it'd be nice to them. And they, they would think, well, why is he so confident? Why is he why is he not trying to, you know, become aggressive too? And, you know, I always thought if they've, if they've gone to the trouble of trying to look, stare you down or whatever, it's because they're worried about you. So, uh, yeah, I used to take that as a positive and, and just smile back with your with your prep chris so we, you know we mentioned earlier that you don't as a cyclist you don't walk anywhere you lie down rather than sitting down so you get asked before the olympics in 2012 this enormous honor of holding the flag at the opening ceremony so i can imagine you with all your prep being torn because it's huge to be able to carry that flag but surely the last thing you want to do is Quite a warm night, walking around, and you're going to hold that properly, I imagine. I can't remember whether you held it, Matthew Pinsent style, free of the... Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, straight arm. Straight arm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. So that's going to take it out of someone. Well, the thing is that you, you're absolutely right. You wouldn't choose in your training programme, if you're writing out the ideal prep for the Olympic Games for your biggest race of your life, you know, two days before, I'm going to spend four hours on my feet walking around. You know, it, you just it's totally illogical to, to consider doing it. But on the flip side, you've got to work out, well, what are you going to get back from it? So I hadn't done a single opening ceremony before. I'd done a Commonwealth Games one back in 2002. But apart from that, I'd only ever seen them on the TV in, from the village. 
So I got the I got a little message from Dave B saying, you know, um, I want to have a quick word with you. You've been, he brought me into his room and said that like, you've been nominated to carry the flag. He said, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, there's no, there wasn't even a, a second's thought. You know, of course I want to do it because this is the this is your home Olympics. This is the one opportunity in your lifetime to lead the team out, and you're going to do it in front of a home crowd. What an amazing experience! But you know, how do we make it work? And he's like, well, look, let me think about it. And in true Dave B style, he came back about half an hour later and said, I've got your helicopter sorted. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> so, um, you know, so we got this. We were staying at the, the Celtic Manor in Newport and we were planning to head down um, in cars like two days after it. It was just this matter, right, I'm going to get you a helicopter. We're going to fly you in as close as we can to the village. There'll be a driver there. I'll pick you up, take you straight in, literally to the almost not quite the minute, but give you an hour to settle in, get your kit on, go downstairs, meet the team. And then just try and minimize the time on your feet. So whenever you can, you sit down, you know, literally you're walking from the village into the stadium, which is only a couple of miles, but it's it's long enough when you're not used to walking at all. But the, the, what drains you, it's not the walking and the standing, it's the fact that you, the, your adrenaline and your excitement as you're walking in and there's crowds on both sides and you're high-fiving folk and you're, you know, you're, it's just this building up of anticipation. Um, and you look back now with the pandemic and the coronavirus and hygiene, you know, we were told to take hand gel with you because it literally everywhere, you know, whenever you high five someone or shake hands, it was still four or five days till competition. You could pick up a bug. So it was hand shake, high fiving people. And then it was like squirt the hand gel, <laughs> get it on. Then before it even dries, you're high fiving someone else and more hand gel and trying to stay healthy and stay, you know, stay fit and healthy for the race. And then I got to the final step. You can come to the stadium and here we go. This is your moment. And you've been, you know, you've been anticipating it for two or three hours by that point. And then you go in and it was just this explosion of sound. It was it was this noise from the crowd. It was the confetti cannons going off, boys, heroes playing. And you're told, you know, when you walk in, carry the flag this way, pass the rail box, do this, do that. Yep, yep, no problem. I won't forget all that. You walk in and it just goes out of your head straight away. <laughs> and I was just giving it the big wave, you know, one arm waving at <laughs> the flag. And, and, and it was really, it was a really emotional moment too. It was just that moment of thinking, do you know what? It's been a hard four years to get to these games healthy and fit. Um, you know, injury, defeats, teammates like Jason Kenny, who, you know, were, were really pushing me all the way for the individual um, slot in the Kieran and the sprint. And I thought, you know what, this is, it's all been worth it just for this moment, just to carry the flag, just to walk in, to experience these few seconds. It's made all that hard work worthwhile. Um, and if I get a medal of any colour on top of this, then that's a bonus. So it, it, it took the pressure off me. And the opposite of what people might expect, being the flag bearer, you've got the ex, extra expectation. But I, I felt the opposite. I thought, you know what, this is, it was all worth it for this one moment. And if I get anything else, then that's a, that's a bonus. And Brad Wiggins got to just walk on stage and, and ring a bell. Easiest job in the world. Well, it was weird because I saw him, I, it was before the, um, before the opening ceremony that night, the only three people from the, the team were Dave B., Bradley and me that had, had, had arrived. So I went to the room straight in. Yeah, it was the first time I'd seen Bradley since the tour. And it was just this this kind of moment of bloody hell, mate, you've just won the Tour de France. You know, it was it was really surreal. And um, well, you remember, Garrett, we were in Newport watching him yeah. on the screen. You know, we all gathered in the, when they went down the Champs-Élysées to, you know, the final stage. And we all gathered down there and watched it and, and sort of clapped as he and cheered as he crossed the line. And there, there was one of our teammates winning the Tour de France, and you know, and that picture of you, you know, standing watching it as well, Garrett, just thinking, God, did you, did you really think at that moment that you would ever be doing the same thing? Not a chance in hell, no, 
No. <laughs> I think, just remember we all stood there in our sweaty skin suits, weren't we, in track centre and watching yeah. on someone's laptop. And yeah, that just seemed like, wow, it was just unbelievable, really. And I was thinking, nah, no chance I'll ever be there. But, um, well, yeah, it happened. Yeah, but, me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've never been to opening ceremony either. I think we went to the closing one in London, but that was a bit disappointing. I think it's kind of more tailored to watch on TV, to be fair, because we couldn't really... Was it Spice Girls singing? Yeah. Spice Girls was there. George Michael was yeah. there. And yeah, we exactly. had a little flask of like gin or something. Me, Ed. I think you were... Were you there, Chris? I'm sure... I was there, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have been drinking. No. <laughs> I think you were handing them out, actually, yeah. Here you go, boys. I'll tell you this story. Oh, do you remember what happened? We were we were queuing up, and um, and it was, again, it takes forever to go in for these events because all the countries, you know, nation by nation, and you're taking forever. And, you know, I was absolutely starving, and they had all these food stalls out, and we were going past the pizza one, and the guy, I gave a wave to the guy at the pizza place, and he was like, hey, you want a pizza? I was like... Yeah, please, please. How many do you want? And he brought over like three or four pizzas for us, free of charge, and we just handed them out. And oh, it was a lifesaver because I was running low on energy. I was, I was, you know, we're, as a sprinter, we've got to eat every sort of, you know, sixty minutes or, we, or every ninety minutes. So we started to get grumpy, and uh, yeah, this I was uh, that was a lifesaver. That pe- that perked me up no end. That was great. You must have got a little bit of pizza, I'm sure. That's what six gold medals get. Yeah, going. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was allowed a slice. I think you let me have a slice and like a coffee. But the weird thing from the outside, when you when you always go to an Olympics, it's like you're the worst tourist in the world. Like you two were both in Beijing. Gee, you didn't see any of the big hitters in Beijing. Did you? Didn't go to Tiananmen Square, Forbidden City, Great Wall, none of it. Nah. Well, you know, I was 22. It was all about the the race until that point. So you know, we were fully committed. But as soon as we won, it was like, well let's go drink, let's go party, you know. I don't want to go see a wall or some square. Like <laughs> Some squares, wh- a wall. <laughs> where, where's the party at? <laughs> but now, I don't know if I'd be any different now, to be honest, actually. I'm not really a big sightseer, you know. It's all cool, like old walls and stuff, but yeah, I'd rather just enjoy it with the boys, you know. Plenty of time for a sightseeing when you get a bit older like me, you know. <laughs> what about after your race, Chris? Did you... Uh, stay until the end because cycling is normally one of the first events so it's a long time to stay isn't it yeah well I carried the flag in the closing ceremony for in Beijing oh so I, I sorry in for that I should know and, that and um, well that was no I should know it but as you say it's one of these things it's all about the opening really isn't it it's the, the closing it is for TV but it's a it's yeah the athletes are just going there to, to celebrate and then you go straight from there back to the village and then the parties start and you have your you have your fun um, but we were leaving the next day Doug, as always, Doug Daly was he was an absolute legend of British cycling who started out as a coach and then became in the logistics and the planning and sort of managed the team. And he always, because Doug was very disciplined, a real kind of military precision with everything. And he, you know, he'd get up in the morning and he'd do, you know, 50 press-ups and he was in his, I mean, he must have been in his 60s at that point. Great guy. And <laughs> But one thing he always used to do was book the flights as early as possible the night after um, what? the last night of celebration. So he, we'd all be absolutely... <laughs> you know, in a terrible state. And then it would be, it'd be, okay, boys, downstairs at 6am. And you'd be like, oh, thanks, Doug, brilliant. So yeah. we, we were leaving. I think the flight, we had to, we had to leave at like 3 or 4am. So we basically stayed up all night and then got the, the bus straight into um, into the airport and it was a hell of a journey back. Slept the whole way. Expected to arrive and just have this, the usual, you know, couple of journalists with a, a few 
questions and then straight back to your, your room back home. And we arrived into Gatwick and there was this massive press conference and we came off the steps and suddenly dawned to me, actually, this is a bit bigger than Athens or Sydney or anything I'd experienced before. This is a big deal. And and from then on, for the next, so I guess it was the same for you after winning the tour, for the next two or three weeks or probably next month, it was it was unbelievable just the number of things you had to go and do and people to see and you know events and media um it was quite overwhelming really yeah and going back to that traveling home that was probably the best perk did you because we got a gold membership to ba and a business ticket home first business class ticket yeah. i ever had oh. did you not did you not get a first class no you gotta win bloody six to get one of them don't you Ah, oh, you got stuck back in business, did you? Yeah. Oh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> was the Beijing one the Brad Wiggins taxi bonnet one? Yes. That was it. That was good. I wasn't there. I was, what, you were there for that? Yeah, I was there. So basically, it was out of some movie. I don't know what movie it was, but he did some roll across a taxi bonnet, which was, I don't know, he said, Duke's he said, style. he shouted something, maybe, yeah, and rolled across, and then suddenly the taxi driver gets out. Ah! You and like just going nuts at him, and uh, the police are there. Like all the BOA like officials are there. Ross Edgar was there as well, actually the the guy that got you out of the he's, the shit in LA. Yeah, yeah, there's usually a pattern. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, but he's usually there stirring up. He usually he's in the background, kind of <laughs> yeah. holding you on to have a bit of fun, and then he stands <laughs> back and goes, "Oh god." Uh, but no, so it was at the G- Team GB house, wasn't it? That's it's outside there. Yeah. So. What was that house? It was just basically where we could go for a drink and stuff and watch the events. Yeah. Yeah. So every game they'll have called GB House. They'll have it. They rent out a place and they make it as a a venue for family and friends to come in. And there's, you know, food and drinks and and there's big screens with all the, the, the British competitors competing and stuff. And yeah, it's, it's usually your kind of home from home. And free booze and food. So you can't complain. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Is it true that the that, that Dutch house, so the the uh, the Dutch one, that's got free Heineken? That was always a rumor that did the rounds. Yeah, Heineken house. That's where I was that night when I missed Bradley's Dukes of Hazard <laughs> roll on the bonnet. We were over at the Heineken house. Um, the Dutch usually have a massive venue, and it's a huge, huge place. Or it was in Beijing, and uh, yeah, that was that was a place to be at that point. Well, obviously not because the place to be was <laughs> Taxi Bonnet. Outside Team GB House for a legend, yeah, legendary moment. But um, yeah, no, it was, it was, there was always something going on. In, in Sydney, it was the, the Canadian house. They had all these different bars. Back in the day, that was when you used to wear cargo pants, you know, the, the trousers with the kind of pockets in the side. Great for stashing booze. Well, well, great for stashing Olympic medals, it turns out. Ah. So, um, what I did was, there's like a little loop that you put your keys on or whatever, but instead of putting keys, I took my silver medal that I just won in the team sprint <laughs> and uh, so I laced it through this, this hoop and then you keep the medal in the pocket. And you can jump all the queues, it turns out. And it was great. It was, you know, one of these things that and we went out with Johnny Clay. He'd got his bronze medal in Team Pursuit. Um, I think Rob Rob Hales might have been out with us that night too. Craig, Jason, Jason Queeley, Craig McLean. And yeah, the, the medals basically got us in everywhere, wherever you wanted. You just kind of got it out and they go, yeah, that's not real. And they look at it and go, why have you brought your Olympic medal <laughs> on a night out? <laughs> and you're like, because it's going to get me in the bar, isn't it? And they go, yeah, fair enough, when you go. So, yeah. <laughs> Someone told me that after London, actually. And I was like, oh, yeah, great idea. I'll take my medal with me. And then my wife, Sarah, was there. And she was like, you are not taking that anywhere. <laughs> like, I lose my coat every yep. time we go out. So, a good job. Because we woke up in the morning. Our door to the room was wide open. My Olympic gold medal's in the middle of the floor. And we're just there, like, oh, in geez. bed, just like, what? Oh, it was, yeah. 
good good time. Did you go to the cocktail bar? You, what was that cocktail bar? It was the one that Prince Harry used to go. Mahiki, was it? That used to. Oh, yeah. Was that the one that everyone piled yeah. into? Did you get your brother-in-law, Ringy? Did you get Reese in? Yeah, so uh, there was quite a few of us heading there. Because um, obviously Team Pursuit, like, well, three of us were heading out, but Ed still had the Omnium. So we were like, oh, good luck, mate. But, you know, we're off out to celebrate. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we all had like these GB blazers. They must have been for some ceremony, maybe the opening or closing. Anyway, we were all wearing them. And then once we got in, we just took them off. And I gave one to Reese, my brother-in-law, and then he was with his mate, then the next day they were flying off on holiday somewhere and they were like, oh, well, let's just wear these GB blazers. <laughs> so then they're rocking up for this easy jet flight to, I don't know, Prague or wherever the hell it was. <laughs> they get to jump the queue. <laughs> Everyone's clapping them. Business class on easy jet. Business wow. class on easy jet. Yeah, with this free GB blazers they got the night before. So, yeah. <laughs> Perks. Mega. That's what it's all about. It's not about the gold medals. It's about the extra stuff you get. Exactly. <laughs> Chris, you always seem to nail, but certainly by London, because you had sufficient practice, you seem to nail the like that immediate post-race celebration. And I remember um, talking to Jason about this, Jason Kenny about this once. And he told me what seemed like a very strange thing to me, which was as soon as he'd finished the race, he felt that the fun part was over. Because the fun part for him is the going fast. You know what Jason's like? He loves speed with cars, whatever, motorbikes. So he yeah. felt as soon as the, as soon as the race is over, the fun bits finished. And I think it's I think it's a team sprint, and there's a shot, possibly the the, the the BBC TV footage, and you know what you're doing, so you know what you're meant to be. You're standing in the middle, <laughs> and you've got one arm around Phil Hines, and then you've got one arm out ready for Jason. And then if you read your lips, <laughs> yeah. you can see you say to Phil, "Where's Jason?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's already in the taxi home. Yeah, he's uh, he's had a shower. He's on his way back. Yeah, it was it was that's Jason. I mean, Jason is a unique a unique person. Never met anyone like him before. Never will again. Um and he's he's very shy. Um he doesn't like being the center of attention. He is able to deal with pressure like nobody that I've ever met. You know, he can just stand up there at an Olympic games in an Olympic final and just sort of you know well, this is what we're. This is why is everyone so excited? Well, this is this is what it's all about. You know, we've been training for this. We knew it was coming. Why are you surprised at this? Why are you so excited? Just get on with it. Um, and it, yeah, that was the team sprint, and we were. It was such a relief. You know, we. we it, it was a tough couple of years in the team sprint. We hadn't won a single championship, I don't think, until or, or since since Beijing in two thousand and eight. So a really barren four years. Not like the team pursuers winning everything. <laughs> Um, and then so we won it we brought the world record and it was this moment of my god we've done it I cannot believe we've done it right where's Jason let's celebrate and he was already in the track centre kind of warming down <laughs> bring him up you know um, but yeah for me the, the, those those moments I really do miss those moments people ask what do you miss when you retire I miss all the fun stuff like we've been talking about the, the travelling and the, the the moments that don't make the newspapers or you know that aren't the, you know just little things the fun stuff with your mates travelling to and from the races but the post race moment that that literally the moment you cross the line and then the crowd erupts and it's just this outpouring of emotion and you spent the last you know two three weeks leading up to the games containing the emotion you know not letting any emotion of any sort come to the surface and particularly if you're doing more than one event you know you've you've had three events it's the final one and you have celebrated after the first two but this is you know you can't really let it out until the final one and i remember in in, in beijing after the sprint against jason in the final and, and, you know, thinking I'm either going to win two golds and a silver and that'd be brilliant or I'm going to win three gold medals and that would be the perfect, the perfect games. And, you know, I have to finish the job off here. And it, 
it wasn't just because it was a teammate it was any easier in many ways it was even tougher racing someone that knows you and, and vice versa but that feeling when I crossed the line and you just I used to scream I, I'd, I'd literally scream when I crossed the line letting it all out um, and that, yeah just it that those are the moments that you that you lived for um, and those are the moments you look back on and yeah you never you never quite match them and anything else you do but they were you know that was that was an, an amazing time how was that sorry just going back to jason how was it like racing jason like head to head like that in something so big for both of you or maybe not for jason but you know for, <laughs> but like because for me like with some of my rivals like i don't want to know them that well because i want to have that dislike for them almost yeah yeah well it was weird because we we, we knew after the qualifying so the sprint was spread over three days, so I qualified quickest. He was just behind me in second, and we knew that if, as long as we all won, you know, if we won our qualification rides, quarters, semis, we would meet in the final as the first and second seed. So from that moment, you know that, that basically the guy who's living in the room next door to you, you're sharing an apartment, he's sleeping next door, you're going to be fighting out against each other for the gold medal. And it, from then on, it's as you do with all your teammates, whether it was with Jason Queeley in the kilo or Craig McLean or Jamie or whoever, your teammates, until you cross the line, when you step on the track, it doesn't matter whether it's Jason or whether it's a rider from Australia or Germany or whatever, you've got to beat them. And it's the same mindset. You're, you're, you're at war with them on the track. And when you step back off the track, that's when you become pals again, you know, and you can... Are you really pals though? <laughs> well, we were, yeah, we were like... but the golden rule was... Oh, <laughs> The thing was that you, you just we didn't we didn't sort of talk about it as such, but the golden rule became you never talked about cycling off the track. So you talk about you know your your girlfriend or your you know football or or motorsports or coffee or food or whatever you know you, you'd chat about anything other than the racing, and that was off limits. You just didn't talk about it. And then you know when it came to the moment, you just treated him like any other com- competitor. But we were genuine. Gen- or I, <laughs> He may say differently, but we were genuinely good <laughs> friends um, and we still are today. And it's, you know, it's one of the things you, you have a respect for each other. You know, you, I, I respect Jason enormously. I think he's a massively underrated athlete, which is a strange thing to say about somebody who has six Olympic gold medals. But he is physically and mentally, you know, almost perfect for, for the sprint and the Kieran. He's, he's just he has the right temperament. He has the right physiology. And it just because he doesn't celebrate and, and show the emotion I think people think that he doesn't care about it he absolutely does care about it and he you can't you, you don't win these medals back and you can't just turn up and fluke it the work that goes in day in day out for the full four years and people say that he kind of you know hibernates in between Olympic Games that's not the case he's still training absolutely flat out he's still throwing up in buckets in between efforts he's still doing everything he possibly can to be the best he can be but he I think the Olympics bring out the best in him um, and I'm sure we still, well, as long as the games go ahead in Tokyo, um, then we've got more to see of him um, this year. I asked him about that nerves thing once because it fascinated me because you from the outside, Chris, always looked completely in control of what you were doing. But we know subsequently from all the stuff you've talked about and the work you did with Steve Peters that maybe that wasn't always the case. So I asked Jason about that once and he gave me a response that was, it was simultaneously simple and just absolutely gobsmacking. So he said, yeah, I was doing a race once when I was a kid when I was about 15 and I felt quite sick before the race and uh, I thought, oh, I must have eaten something funny and I didn't do very well in the race. And then afterwards I thought, oh yeah, that was nerves. Uh, that wasn't very good. So I told myself I'm not going to be nervous again. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, that is very adjacent. You know, it's, it's almost it's almost like he's on a certain spectrum and he's, he's able to just, he, he doesn't, you know... 
I don't know. He, he has this ability to to just compartmentalize his emotions and his his life, and he can when he's on form physically and when he's in the right frame of mind. You know, there's there's nobody that can beat him. But it does take the sort of all the moons to you know all the planets to align for him to be in that right state of mind. And they change lives, don't they, Olympics? Like maybe more so, Chris, for you than you, G. You know, we shouldn't forget your two gold medals. I want those to go by the by. But there was one story you told me, Chris, and I'm going to put this to G because, G, I want you to tell me whether you think this story uh, from Chris is true or whether it's convenient or whether it's bull, okay? So okay. uh, the story from Chris, um, which I, th- I think I remember right, was that you couldn't go into the supermarket anymore, Chris. So you used to sit in the car and you'd send your, your wife in to do the shopping. <laughs> She'd do all the shopping. And then when she came back with a trolley, you'd get out and you'd open the boot <laughs> under the excuse, I can't possibly go into the supermarket. I'm going to be recognised. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. I think you've actually told me that, no? Well, that was in your book. So, you know, you obviously wrote your book yourself. <laughs> oh, was it? <laughs> I had a, I had a, well, I, read your book. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you've read it or not, but I, I have read it. Yeah. <laughs> that was 2015. So, uh, uh that book came out. So it's a long time ago, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Fair enough. Fair, I've done two yeah, since. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know you have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now that is true. That's, I mean, it sounds like basically that would be a situation where we had to go in, you know, we weren't in a rush to get somewhere. We need to get some food for dinner tonight, whatever, dash in, dash out. If I come in with you or if I go myself, it's going to add an extra five minutes and it literally would, you know, add time because, yeah, it was it was that kind of, you know, I'll wait here, you dash in and she would end up doing the shopping and I would sort of sit in the car waiting. And there was one time um, I was in the, the car park outside the supermarket and then I saw these paparazzi turn up. I thought, oh God, there's the paparazzi. And it was, and I was sitting in the car, so I pulled my, my baseball cap down and I thought they did spotted me, and it was because there was a a new footballer had just was obviously arrived <laughs> playing for Man City or Man United, and he was in this in this supermarket, and he came out, and they all like come out the bushes. All these when the paparazzi are terrifying when you when they actually do it's only, it doesn't happen that often. It's happened a few times to me, but it's a really sinister thing because they don't speak; they just come towards you, and you hear the and you're like, "What do you want? Do you want? Would you like a picture? Do you want to say hello?" And they don't actually speak to you at all. You just stand there taking these pictures and, and I thought what what do I do does do I smile do I, do I ignore them do I walk off um but yeah it's yeah it was so that time it wasn't even for me <laughs> crazy times well cheers thanks for coming Chris that's been a been a pleasure I would say our first sir but um we've actually had sir Paul Smith on as well but oh, yeah. second sir so your joint top again sorry mate oh well <laughs> you've got a high hey you've got a high standard though. that's good to see no it's been great and I've managed to get out of doing the bath time and bedtime so you know or the kids are just about to go to bed now so so thank you perfect it's been great another week on Swift then Tom how's it going yeah good I've I've tried a race G I thought it was time so I entered one of the British cycling crit city ones and Listen, there's some stuff that I think you'll be proud of me about and some stuff where you're going to have to ridicule me. So the race was 26K. So you're racing for just over half an hour, 12 laps. And I'm getting tactical as I'm going through this race. There's a little section towards the end where it's a dirt section and it's a bit lumpy. So I'm thinking as the laps go by, right, that's where I'm going to attack. Because I thought I seem to be pulling away from my little, my little pack on this thing. So there we are. I've got my tactics in place. And then... We come to the final lap and I just realised like an absolute mug 
let everyone get about 50, 60 metres ahead of me. So by the time I've put my little burst in, it's pointless, right? <laughs> so I think there was about 30 of us in the race and there's a couple right off the front. Then there's another group, then there's my group. And of my group, there were seven of us going around this circuit. And I think I was sixth out of seven. So I basically, tactically, I made a total mess of it. Yeah, you need to plan more, Tom, I think. You need to just, yeah, stay focused, hold that wheel. And when you go, go all in. But yeah, well, live and learn, mate. It's only a, it's only a problem if you make the same mistake twice, hey? That's what they say, something along those lines. Thanks, coach. You're welcome. <laughs> Now, if you fancy getting sweaty indoors, improving your fitness, maybe trying a race, go to Zwift.com to start your free trial. And don't forget to join the GTCC at six o'clock in the evening every Wednesday for our group rides. Everyone is welcome. Right, G, it's that time in the pod for any other club business. And as usual, we're going to start with some appointments. First up, it's a super important role one we've definitely overlooked. This is probably one that I should have sorted out as chairperson, the health and safety rep. Not the most glamorous, but important. And magically, Steve Mills has got in touch to say he'll do it on the very good reason that he works in health and safety already. Yeah, sound. He can turn up in his high-vis jacket, but hopefully he's not too sort of uh, health and safety conscious. We need a bit of danger in this pod, don't we? <laughs> you know what I mean? We, we don't want yeah, like. I hope he doesn't turn up with a clipboard and a bloody pen and all that malarkey. He just, yeah, I'm sure he's a nice guy though. Yeah, no, be good, be good. Yeah, if he could sort of maybe get there ahead of time as well, because if he if he goes in and sorts things out and no one notices, that's a win. If we're all ready to do something and he marches up, whoa, 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 that's a loss. So, Steve, if you're listening, that's the way we'd like you to take this role on. <laughs> Our second appointment of the day, G. Now, this is for a super domestique. We chatted to. Ian Stannard, didn't we, in episode two? Go and listen to that if you haven't had the chance. And from that episode, Theo Hester would like to be our GTCC super domestique, especially in the mountains, which is a good job. He's only 13, but he's working towards becoming the youngest ever Everester. And an Everester, if you don't know, G, is when you try and climb the height of Everest, but do it on a hill which isn't Everest because Everest isn't paved and it's quite hard to get to. So, for example, you might do your local hill and you do your local hill the number of times that would add up to the height of Everest. Is that yeah, right? that's it. What is the height of Everest? Do you know? I think I know. 12,000 metres-ish? Oh, seven and a half, eight. I you might be know. right. I've thrown a pub quiz answer in there. So Theo had listened to the pod and while doing some reps of Alp de Zwift said it was really useful. Well, that's cool. And finally, Paul Connell wants to put himself forward as the club barber. Great position. We will do that bit of that in lockdown. He's been cutting hair and cycling for 30 years. Happily, he says, never at the same time, because I would imagine that Steve Mills, our health and safety rep, would have an awful lot to say about a barber <laughs> who cycles and uses scissors at the same time. Yeah, very true, Tom. And Paul, if you'd like to give our GTCC members some tips on how to cut the hair, especially during this lockdown, that would be great. Especially me, actually, because Sa normally does mine and I haven't been with her for a while due to the whole pandemic and Brexit and stuff. Long story, mate, we won't go there. But yeah, my hair is it could definitely do with a trim. So yeah, I'm lucky though, at least it's messy. I go for the messy look anyway. So, you know, rather than yourself, you know, yours is quite sort of angular and, you know, a bit pre precise in it, whereas mine's just... Yours runs free. Exactly. I can get away <laughs> with it. <laughs> Right, let's do a few shout-outs, G. 
Okay, first goes to Matt Wright, who posted on the Facebook group to say, after listening to the podcast, he's finally ordered a turbo trainer. So he's looking forward to getting started on Zwift. He also said it's the best cycling group he's come across, as there's no daft comments to new cyclists. Well, that's a nice touch. That's the sort of vibe we're going for, isn't it? Everyone is welcome on the GTCC. Matt, we hope to see you on a group ride soon. Nick Plant has got in touch after catching up on our first episode, which was all about climbing, and the mention of the cat and fiddle. He says, as a keen local, very amateur cyclist in this area of the Peak District, I thought Geraint would be keen to hear there's a cool feature at the top now, so you can check the weather before setting off, because you got stranded in the snow there once, didn't you, with Stannard? Another cool fact, and this is sort of blowing my mind a bit, apparently it's a whiskey distillery in the making, so the toilet should be functioning again soon. So does this mean, Nick Plant, that there's going to be a, a still of whiskey at the top of the cat and fiddle? Almost, you know, gee, like as a kid, you hear these stories about St Bernard rescue dogs and they'd be banding through the snow with like a little barrel of rum. Maybe this is the cycling equivalent. There's going to be a little secret stash of whiskey at the top of the cat and fiddle for frozen cyclists. <laughs> yeah, I just fear for the descent then, after a few whiskeys at the top. But don't drink and ride, guys. That's the health and safety man. Health and safety man as well. And finally, Celeste Haslam wants a shout out and she says she'd love to hear from Wout Van Aert on the pod. Yeah, watch his space. Nice one. A final one today, G. We gave our members the option of sending in an anonymous question on our email, which is, of course, gtcc at crowdnetwork.co.uk. And we've had quite a good one this week and this taps into a lot of latent fears and maybe... I don't know, stories that go around cycling when you first start. The question is this. Do pro riders wax and go hairless under their shorts? <laughs> uh, no, I don't wax. It's just, just a normal razor like you do on your face. It takes a bit of time though, especially after the off-season. You can have quite... You can take chunks out of your legs because it takes forever. Get impatient, but... What do you mean hairless now under my shorts? You mean well, I was hot... in, I was into yeah, I was interpreting that not particularly the leg area, but maybe the area which ultimately connects the legs. <laughs> um, oh, well, I don't, but each to their own, I guess. You know. Um, have you heard it happening? I've seen have it. You, have you? Obviously, you've seen you've... someone waxing the no, 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 no. Let me get that <laughs> set the record straight. I haven't seen people waxing their undercarriage, but. Of, we obviously share showers, don't we? And there's a few bald Germans and stuff around, yeah. <laughs> just just leave is it that, at that. Is that Germans in general, though? Is that specifically cycling Germans? Specifically the the cycling Germans I've ridden with. So I'm basically just told everyone that Christian Nies has <laughs> a bald sack, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> and that is the beauty of the anonymous question. People can get away with this sort of outrageous revelation. <laughs> but also going back to under your shorts if you're talking about your whole leg as well then yeah we do that as well obviously because part of it is with crashing so it'd be weird as well wouldn't it because we got weird tan lines anyway so imagine having a tan line and then a hairline that would not be a look at the beach would it and on that bombshell we'll see you next time That was the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Thanks to our health and safety rep, Steve, our super domestic Theo, our barber, Paul. To our head of social media, Fionn Clark, our head of music, Emma Hickman, our treasurer, Diane Barker, and our honorary president, Mike Carr. And of course, to you for listening. We'll see you next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.